Last week we began a brief series that we have simply entitled, What God Has Joined. And of course we read those words in the context of the marriage relationship as Jesus uttered them as recorded in Matthew 19, 6. When he said, What God has joined together, let not man separate, as the New King James renders it, or what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, as the King James renders that passage. And certainly the marriage relationship is a crucial, God-ordained relationship, and we need to take seriously the words of Scripture concerning that relationship. But we're simply using that expression, what God has joined, to look at, in a brief series of lessons, some other very crucial and vital things to which God has joined himself. We looked initially at the fact that God has joined himself to the world, to this universe. And while the atheists and the agnostics and others try to separate God from his creation, from his world, the resounding response from creation itself is, God is. And we looked at the word God itself, the guilt, the order, the design to let those three letters in the name of God represent three very powerful arguments for God's existence. Guilt, the moral argument, that man is an innately moral being, and while he may fight against and often does fight against that innate morality and sear his conscience as with a hot iron, as the Scripture says, nonetheless he is created as a moral being, and morality demands a higher perfect morality, that morality being God. We looked at the order, the cosmos, the word cosmos meaning order, and the fact that this cosmos is orderly. It is an effect that demands an adequate cause. And the only adequate cause for this orderly cosmos is God. And then we looked at design, and the fact that design demands a designer. And we looked at so many examples of that design that cannot be denied and therefore leads us back to God. But then in our second lesson, we looked at the fact that God has not only joined himself to the world, but he has joined himself to the Word. God who created us has given to the pinnacle of his creation, man, his revelation. And in that revelation, we find God's will for us. And in that revelation, we find it to be just what it claims to be from God. And we looked at the evidences for the inspiration of Scripture in our second lesson. And so in our series thus far, we've established two very important points. God has joined himself to his universe, to his world, and to his word. Now, in this, the third lesson, I'd like for us to see that God has joined himself to Jesus. And you cannot separate the two. Oh, I know that there are many who seek to do that and who are determined to do that. Many, obviously, who do not believe in God are not going to believe in Jesus. They're certainly not going to uh, connect God to Jesus when they don't even accept the existence of God. But even those, many of those, who claim to believe in God, nonetheless deny that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. They do not say or contend that God has joined himself to Jesus. I believe I remember hearing Oprah Winfrey a few years back talking in a religious context on television about many ways, there are many ways to God. Many ways to God, I believe, was the expression. Well, 
if we have established and we have to the honest observer that this is the inspired word of God, then what does this word tell us about many ways to God versus one way? This book tells us there is but one way, and it tells us that God has joined himself to that one way, and that one way is through Jesus Christ. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's all we need to know, really, to know that you cannot separate God from Jesus Christ. And as we examine this great truth, we'll do so looking at the following points, three of them. First of all, the promise of God to send his Son. Secondly, the prophecies concerning Christ. And then I want us to look at the person of Christ as he lived among men and what he himself declared about himself and about his connection to the Father. What about the promise? Takes us back to Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? In Genesis 3.15, after the fall of man in the garden, after Eve had succumbed to the temptation of Satan and eaten of that fruit and had, had encouraged her husband to do the same, to the serpent, to Satan, who had taken the form of the serpent, God said this, and I will put enmity, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. There we have the first promise. There we have the first promise that God and Christ are inseparable and that you cannot separate one from the other because God is saying, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between you, Satan, and her seed. Her seed, the seed of woman, a clear, undeniable reference to the Christ. He goes further to say, He, Christ, shall bruise your head. That's the resurrection from the dead. And you shall bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. Oh yes, the crucifixion would lead Satan to believe temporarily that he had won the day and that he had been victorious over Christ. But the resurrection of Christ from the dead would prove to be the fatal head wound to Satan, bruising his head. That's the first promise we have in Scripture that Jesus Christ would die for the sins of the world and in so doing, he would bruise the head of Satan. Oh yes, the crucifixion was a heel bruise, the resurrection, a head wound that was fatal to destroy the devil. That is, to give us the ability to destroy his power through the greater power, Jesus Christ. And following that promise that we read in Genesis 3, then we see the beautiful unfolding of a plan by which God would save man through Jesus Christ. And when you turn to Genesis chapter 4, you see the picture of Christ. You see the picture of Christ in Genesis chapter 4, pictured, if you will, in that lamb that Abel brought in sacrifice to God. Verse 4 of, he, of Genesis 4 said, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Why did he not respect Cain and his offering? Cain brought the fruit of the ground, you remember. 
And oh, there, while there's so many lessons to be learned and so much time could be spent right here, what we primarily want to see is the picture that is painted for us here in Genesis 4. The picture that is painted by the lamb that Abel brought. We can understand when we see the picture why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. The fruit of the ground in no way typifies the Lamb of God who would ultimately take away the sins of the world. There's nothing in the fruit of the ground that can typify that. But there is something in that Lamb whose blood was shed there that does typify the Lamb of God. And so the picture is there in Genesis chapter 4. And hundreds of years later, the people of Palestine would hear John the baptizer say of Jesus, what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Right back here in Genesis 4 is where the picture is first presented. And then when you turn to Genesis chapter 5, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. The picture is in chapter 4, and the people through whom this promise would be fulfilled, through whom this plan would culminate, the people are pictured in chapter 5. God would bring his son to earth through a specific line. And then when you come to chapter 6 of Genesis, having seen the picture in chapter 4 and the people in chapter 5, you see the principles of redemption in chapter 6. The principles of redemption are set forth in Genesis 6 by which man would have to be saved from sin. The principle of salvation by what? By grace through obedient faith. We've talked about it before in detail. Genesis 6 verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Verse 9, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. He was obedient. His faith was an obedient faith, and God's grace was extended to him and his family based upon that obedient faith. That principle has never changed by which man must save himself in appropriating or accepting the grace of God. The particulars have changed. We don't build an ark as Noah had to do to prove his obedient faith, but we are to believe, repent, confess Christ, and be baptized for the remission of sins in order to demonstrate our faith and to appropriate or accept the grace of God. I am so indebted to the late Franklin Camp for the beautiful description of those three chapters. The picture in Genesis 4, the people in Genesis 5, the principle in Genesis chapter 6. They are undeniable. In the age in which God communicated to these great patriarchs like Noah and Abraham is known as the patriarchal age. And then when you come to chapter 12 of Genesis, you see God's promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham that through his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. Listen to it. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise of Christ. 
That's the promise of Christ. The seed who would ultimately take away the sins of the world is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And as part of the unfolding process of salvation, as he unfolded that process, that scheme of redemption, that plan of salvation, he gave to Israel, the people through whom Christ was to come, a law. It was called the law of Moses, among other things, the law of God. Sometimes it's simply called the law, but more likely the law of Moses is the term that most people use for it. But it was temporary, this law. It was not intended to be permanent. It was not the culmination of God's plan. And it was to point the people to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Romans 10, verse 4. Paul writes, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When Paul writes, for Christ is the end of the law, while it is true that the law ended with Christ, that's not what that verse is saying. The word end there indicates the purpose. To what end are you doing something? You've heard that expression. To what end are you doing something? That's what's involved here. Christ is the end. He's the very purpose of the law. The law was not given to be permanent and final. It was to lead people to Christ. It was to increase their awareness of the sinfulness of sin and to cause them to clamor for the Christ and for the absolute relief that only Christ could give them to their sinfulness. And yet, as we well know, for the most part, the Jews lost sight of that and clung to the law tenaciously and so tenaciously and to their traditions to which they had added so much of that law that they rejected Christ when he came. Colossians 2.14 is another passage that makes it abundantly clear that this law of Moses was not permanent. Listen to it. Having wept, wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that's the law of Moses, that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then when you turn to Romans chapter 7, and look at Romans 7, 1 through 7, you see a very clear contrast between the law of Moses and the new covenant, the law of Christ. Paul draws that contrast so clearly and so beautifully. And it is without question that it's the law of Moses that he is referring to. Then we come to the Galatian letter in chapter 3 of Galatians. In verse 23, beginning, but before faith came, that is the system of faith, Christianity, Paul refers to, we were kept under guard by the law. That's the law of Moses. Kept for the faith, the system of faith, Christianity, which would afterward be revealed. Then he says, therefore, the law, the law of Moses was our tutor, our schoolmaster, as some translations render it. It was our tutor, our schoolmaster, our escort, if you will, is the idea to bring us to Christ. The law was designed to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after what? Faith has come, the system of faith, he says we are what? No longer under a tutor. The law was our tutor, brought us to Christ, but after Christ, we're not under the tutor. If the tutor was the law and the law was the tutor, and that's the case, then we're no longer under the law of Moses. No question about it. Galatians chapter 3, very, very important chapter. And incidentally, you read on to verse 26 beginning and following. 
For you are all sons of God through faith, he says, in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he adds in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. That goes all the way back to Genesis 12. The seed, the singular seed, as Paul refers to it in the Galatian letter elsewhere, is Christ. But we are the seed plural through the one seed, Christ, and in becoming the seed plural, the seed of Abraham, we're children of Abraham by faith, not by blood. We are his spiritual offspring. Through whom? Christ. So the promise to Abraham from day one, if you will, was to culminate in Christ Jesus. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. That's what God had in mind all along. And you are heirs according to the promise. What a beautiful, harmonious, and unified unfolding of God's plan going all the way back to Genesis. Another passage in Hebrews 9, 15 through 17, the writer there declares, And for this reason he is the mediator, Christ, of a new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the inheritance eternal inheritance. For, he says, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. You can't have a will go into effect until the one who made the will has died. That's what he's saying. Then he says, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So Jesus revealed his will as he lived and promised to give the rest of it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and other inspired writers. And we have that will today, and it is the New Testament. And so it is vitally important to understand that the old law, the law of Moses, has been taken out of the way. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is a key passage. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No question about it. Today he speaks through his son. Today he speaks through the covenant that his son sealed with his blood the new covenant, how vitally important it is for people to understand that the Old Testament has been nailed to the cross. Now, that prompts a question. Well, what then is the value of the Old Testament? If the old law, the law of Moses, has been nailed to the cross, what value at all does the Old Testament have? Well, it has much value. You could not understand the new covenant without familiarity with the old. Remember what Paul wrote about it in Romans 15, 4. He said, For whatever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. He's talking about the Old Testament writings. Look at the examples of obedience we have in the Old Testament books. Look at the examples of disobedience that we have in the Old Testament books. Look at the prophecies pointing to the Christ and to His church that are found there. And that leads us to our second major point. 
having seen the promise of Christ and the fact that God joined himself to Jesus all the way back to that first promise, we now see the prophecies. Isaiah's predictions about the Christ, for example. Isaiah 7.14 is perhaps the most familiar of all of Isaiah's prophecies that most people would remember. It concerns the virgin birth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, Isaiah writes, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he says, will perform this. It's certainty. And then in Isaiah 53, of course, we have the prophecies of Christ's humiliation and his suffering. The suffering servant is described prophetically there in the writings of Isaiah. Oh, and there's so many other prophecies about the Christ that could be mentioned. We'll mention two of them. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. Prophecy about the birthplace of the Christ. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, prophesies that John, the baptizer, would be the forerunner of Jesus. Listen to it. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And, of course, the resurrection is spoken of. In passages like Psalm 16:10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. We mentioned in our last lesson that there are more than 300 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament, all fulfilled minutely. And so the promise reminds us that God has joined himself to Jesus. The prophecies clearly show that God joined himself to Jesus, but finally we see the person himself as he lived among men and the things he said that make it abundantly clear that God and Jesus are inseparable and that you cannot go to God without going through the Christ. You cannot have God without the Christ. We're going to use the gospel according to John to point out some passages about the person himself. We go back to John 1.29, a passage we mentioned at the outset of our lesson today. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he went on through verse 34. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from 
heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This testimony from John takes us back to Genesis 4. The Lamb of God. It's pictured all the way back there in Abel's sacrifice. And it reminds us of the Passover lamb as well in Exodus chapter 12. Christ is our Passover. Oh, the beauty, the unity, the harmony of God's wonderful plan of redemption. The first verses of John 1 tell us Christ was with the Father before the world began. And John 2, 23 through 25 reveals the omniscience of Christ when it is said in those verses that he did not need to be told anything about what was in man because he knew what was in man, his omniscience. John three sixteen is the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we look at John chapter 4 and the first 14 verses there, Jesus refers to himself as the living water in his conversation with the woman at the well. In John 5, verse 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That's a passage that tells us the life in Jesus was not imparted life, it was inherent life. And in John 6, 38, Jesus states his mission. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John seven sixteen and 17, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. John 8, 41 and 42, to some of the Jews there, he said, You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. John eight fifty six through 58 Jesus said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was? No. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Jesus is the eternal present. In John 9, 4 and 5, I must work the works of him who sent me. He said, while it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. And then the next verse, verse 5 of John 9, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And John 10, verse 30, he said, I and my Father are one. And in that poignant prayer to the Father in his last Hours upon this earth, Jesus prayed for all believers for all time to come that they all may be one. John 17, 21 beginning. As you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's a prayer of Jesus that tells us how we may be one with God and Christ. We must be one in doctrine. God and Christ are one. We must not, dare not, seek to separate them. In fact, we must become one with them in order to have any hope whatsoever of eternal life. How do we do that? Upon obedience to the teachings of Christ, we become one with God and Christ, and we're added to the church which Jesus established. In our next lesson, we'll study in greater detail the specific plan by which God has joined Jesus to salvation. But it can be enumerated here briefly and effectively for those who are good and honest hearts. And you can respond to it this very hour. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, that he is one with the Father, and that there is no other way to the Father except through him. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, Jesus declared as recorded in John 8, 24. But he also said, unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish. And so belief must lead to repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And then we're to sweeten our lips with the confession that Jesus said we must make. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. With the heart, Paul wrote, man believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto in the direction of salvation. And then we must be buried in baptism because the blood, the blood must be reached. And the only blood that can save is the blood of the Lamb of God. That blood that was typified so long ago by that first lamb offered by Abel. But that culminated in the Lamb of God whose blood was shed to take away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God. Behold what the Lamb of God has declared you must do to reach his blood. Oh yes, believe as we've said, repent. Oh yes, confess. Yes. And live out that confession after one final step is taken, one which so many so vehemently and tragically deny. Baptism. Burial in water where the blood is applied. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Mark 16, 16. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do so. And if you have, but you've wandered from the way, the truth and the life. There is but one way to the Father and that's to come back to the Christ and go through him to the, to the Father. And we plead with you to come home to your first love if you're a wayward child who needs to repent in a public way. We plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you. Will you come?